You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Good morning, church family. I'm real thirsty. Hold on. I always forget to drink water when I'm up here and then it bites me later. So, um, my name is Andrew. If I haven't had the pleasure to meet you, I'd love to meet you. I'm, I'm so excited you're here, whether this is your first time, your next time, your 50th time. Uh, we're so grateful to have you in our midst this morning. And, and you're joining us on the second week of a four-week uh, mini-series that we're doing here at RCC. And the series is called Side by Side, and uh, we've named it this because what we're doing each week is we're preaching through a, a different story in the Bible where Jesus is engaging with uh, a non-Christian or a non-believer in a meaningful way. And we're doing this, and our hope for you is that each week as you come and listen, you would leave uh, encouraged and motivated by the example of Jesus, but you'd also leave feeling equipped to do the very same thing that Jesus does, the very same thing he's called us to do, which is take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Um, So we're excited to walk through you with it for the next four weeks. And I was telling the first service, I'm I'm grateful to be standing up here before you this morning, Um, not like a metaphorical way, but quite physically. My legs hurt. I... uh, you know, new year, new me, got back to the gym. You know, a lot of people aren't saying new year, new me. I think people are learning to, to not do that because generally nothing changes. <laughs> Just, um, but, you know, I, I adopted a new workout buddy this week. His name is Pastor Adam Wilson. Uh, he's an ex-crossfitter, so he's an animal. And, uh, you know, we did, uh, we did some, some leg workouts this week. And honestly, I was really considering having to ask for a stool up here because I couldn't pick anything up, you know, past like right here. Um, <laughs> But I'm feeling better this morning, but it's wearing on me because I've already been up here once. So uh, if I've collapsed, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll stand back up. But uh, as I, you know, worked out last week, I went home. I was like, sweetheart, Miranda, I'm in a bad place. Um, I just want to sit here. I want to have some soup. and I want to watch a movie. I wanted to watch a funny movie, but we decided to watch a movie called The Mission. And it's a, it's a recently released documentary on Disney+. Plus. It's not funny. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, but it's a beautiful in some regard. It's a documentary, and it's about a a missionary named John Chu. John was a Christian. He was raised in a Christian home, Um, and as he grew in his faith and his walk with Jesus, his heart began to be captivated by international mission work, and more specifically, John was very captured by the idea and the desire to go to a group of totally unreached people, and by unreached people, what we mean by that is a group of people, to the best of our knowledge, that have never, ever, ever heard about the Bible. They've never heard about the name of Jesus. And specifically, John was even more captured and motivated. He wanted to go to a place called the North Sentinel Islands. This was an island on the east side of India. And this was a very special place in the sense that it's one of the last places on earth that uh, missiologists would consider like totally unreached and also an uncontacted group of people, meaning that, that nobody goes in, nobody comes out, and there's not contact in either direction, an unmodernized island. And so there's little to be known. The language is unknown. But, but John had a deep desire to go to this place. And I was a little familiar with this story before I watched the film. And I told Miranda, I said, I'm really surprised. Before we watched, I said, I'm really surprised that like Disney Plus is putting out a, a documentary about a, a courageous Christian missionary. But as I watched the documentary, it became very clear that the, the purpose of this film was not to celebrate the courageous uh, mission work of a of a young man, but it was, it was actually to show the world how 
toxic and preposterous it would be that a Christian would knowingly, willingly put themselves in harm's way for the sake of Jesus. The whole film actually, sadly, is narrated by a missionary that did a similar thing, came back 20 years later, left his wife and kids, and said the whole thing's a wash. It was a film to get parents to protect their children from pain. And I bring this up because it's burdensome, and I think that many of us would in some respect acknowledge that, that pain does accompany the Christian life. God may call us to do hard things. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably engaged with ministry with other Christians. That's very hard. Sometimes church people are the hardest people to get along with. Sharing the gospel itself with someone who doesn't know Jesus can be difficult. It can be socially risky for you. And because of this reality, truthfully, sometimes we get really good at, at quieting the noise or avoiding pain. And by noise and pain, I mean the people and situations that, that aren't very easy to deal with. We become very good at silencing those relationships that are not easygoing by penciling in a lot of R&R time. Rest and relaxation, if you don't know what that is. We pencil all those days in just so we can just deal with, with this, with, the, with people. People are so hard sometimes. One of the things I do at our church is I help oversee our gospel community ministry. And, and the biggest part of my role is just uh, making sure that leaders feel cared for. And also as new leaders get equipped, I help train them to lead groups. And one of the things I always tell our new leaders is uh, the hardest part about what you're about to do is not sending out an email once a week, uh, getting a group of people together, although that is sometimes difficult. Now, the hardest thing that you'll probably find about this role is, is just trying to love on a group of people. People will come to you with, with burdens and cares. They'll expect a lot of things from you. They might even criticize you if you don't have the right answers. And, and we know this is true because people are messy. Christians are messy. I'm messy. Ask my wife. Organizationally, emotionally, sometimes a messy guy. And people can be costly. They cost you your time, your money, your sanity sometimes. But friends, if, if we get so good or our, our instinct is to just close our eyes, shut our ears and hunker down and just try to make it through this life, avoiding all pain, there's two things that'll probably happen. One, you'll probably avoid some of it. You'll avoid some pain. But the other side of the coin is that you may miss the beauty of what God is doing in you and in the people around you, even through pain and uncomfortable situations. And as we're going to see in this story in John chapter 4, I think Jesus calls us to something more. I think what he's going to do is he's going to call us to do three things. He's going to call us to walk with endurance, to walk with repentance, and to walk with hope. So let's jump into it together. We're going to briefly recap the first four verses of what you just heard from Brian. But John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, here's what John writes. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So from the beginning, we see that Jesus is doing what he did best. He's doing ministry. He's investing in disciples. And prior to chapter 4, he's been spending time in Judea, and they've been evangelizing. They've been sharing the gospel. We see in chapter 4 that it's working. People are getting baptized. Jesus is like investing in leaders, and they're baptizing people. I mean, this is, this is the good stuff. This is what Jesus called us to do. And however, Jesus then makes an 
what feels like an interesting decision to, to relocate himself and the disciples. Both scholars and common sense have often pondered maybe why Jesus would do this. I mean, it, like I said, the ministry was working. They were bearing fruit. I mean, it's one of those things that you'd be like, we're gaining momentum in this area. People are coming to know Jesus. Let's, let's keep pressing in and driving where we're seeing results. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, let's, let's pack it up. And, and one of the things we do see from the text is that this, this decision was likely influenced by some continued frustration, persecution, irritation from the Pharisees. But I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus' plans were not thwarted by a group of angry dudes. This, he actually dealt with this almost his entire life and ministry on earth. And so I think as I read this, sometimes I ponder like, I mean, Jesus, you know how to deal with the Pharisees. Like, just tell them something weird that they don't understand and, and they'll get them to shut up. But, but he, he decides to leave. And I, I think we wonder why he would do that. And I think what the text is going to show us is that that Jesus was much more concerned, actually, with taking the gospel to places that did not have momentum, to places where people would be like, I don't think you should go there. It's it probably not going to work. It wouldn't be the place where they'd be like, you should start a church plant there, because I think it'll thrive. They'd be like, I think it's going to fail in the first two weeks. Don't go there. And so with this in mind, he says we, we have to go. Actually, in the end of chapter 4, verse 22, we get a little bit of a glimpse of what I think was Jesus' heart in doing this. He says to the woman, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to, work with him, uh, to worship him. Essentially, Jesus says, I, I know that things are going really well right here, and it would make a lot of, <laughs> it would make a lot of sense for us to stay but I know that there's people, and maybe in this story, there's someone who needs to hear the gospel, and we've got to take it to her. And friends, this reality, this idea is why we do what we do here at RCC. It's why we send out missionaries. It's why we send out church planners like myself and Tim. The reality is, it's not like Tim and I were just like, as the, the next church planners were like, things are really starting to fizzle at RCC. And uh, we're just looking for a fresh start. That's not why we go. Actually, what we acknowledge is that God is doing so much in the midst of our people right now. Because of RCC and God's work, people have come to accept Jesus, and people are becoming more and more like Jesus because of discipleship and community at this place. Trust me, I'd, I'd love to stay here for 30 more years and just watch what God does. But it's with this heart that we send out the next church plan. It's with this heart that we send missionaries to Japan. And it's with this reality in mind that Jesus is like, Let's take a journey to Galilee. And I've got a picture for you on the screen to hopefully uh, put some flesh on this a little bit. This was no, uh, this was no quick Uber ride, a little horseback Uber down to, down to Galilee. I mean, this was a serious commitment. This was a big change in their life. The journey from Judea to Galilee was a long walk, taking many days. And, and what I want you to see on the screen is that um, this journey actually, in fact, for many Jews was, was much longer than it was for any other person. And it was much longer because Jews would take an extra two days to go out to the right. You can see it on the screen a little bit. They'd take an extra two days of walking in order to avoid this one place in the middle called Samaria. And the reason for such avoidance was rooted in a deep-seated hatred and really racism that, that Jews had for Samaritans and vice versa. The reason for such hostility goes back many years when Israel was the northern part was captured by Assyria by a group of immoral people and Jews began to intermarry with these people, have children with them. And so 
really Jews saw Samaritans as like half-breeds of themselves. That's what they would refer to them as in ancient texts. I mean, this is a serious level of sin and hatred, adding two extra days to an already long trip just to avoid see, seeing or being seen with a group of people that they did not like. Can you imagine being so willing to be inconvenienced just to avoid laying eyes on something that you didn't like? Most of us won't even add the extra 10 to 12 minutes to drive through the harbor to save the $400 that we spend going through the toll every day, <laughs> much less two days. And some of us, I think, hear about this radical level of avoidance, and we may scoff at it, how preposterous it is, but, but some of us might resonate with that feeling of doing whatever it takes to avoid something. The street corner you don't park on, the neighborhood you don't drive through, that one person that you don't avoid and you cross the streets, so you don't have to talk to them. And not only does this type of avoidance, I think, persist in the lives of individuals, it also persists, sadly, in the collective minds of powerful people, even the minds of people right here in our, our backyard. I was, I was reading an article this week that was talking about uh, two neighborhoods in our city. Uh, one's called Guilford, one's called Waverly. They're on the northwest side. And they were talking about decades ago when they were building these neighborhoods that um, Guilford was becoming a... a prosperity-driven, uh, upper-class neighborhood. And, and what they would do is they strategically placed one-way streets. They strategically built houses in such directions. They built a 14-foot wall around the neighborhood just so people in that neighborhood could avoid what they were referring to as eyesores. And by eyesores, we mean lower-class, impoverished neighborhoods and people that certain groups of people just didn't want to deal with. I don't even want to look at all that problem over there. Tax dollars spent that those who are well off in society would not even have to look at individuals and communities that did not look like them. And church, this is not the heart of Christ. This is not the pattern for God's people. As we're going to see today, I think the heart of Christ does not avoid the immoral and frowned upon of society. No, the heart of Jesus does not take an extra two days just to not have to deal with those people. No, Jesus walks right, right down the middle, right into the city of Samaria, and he stops at a popular spot, the local watering hole or the well. We know from the text that as they get there, Jesus and his disciples are weary. John actually includes this detail that, like, Jesus is tired because he's like you and me. I mean, he's magical, but uh, he had to walk a lot and he was tired. And so he's taking a break and, and the disciples go to get food and he's sitting there waiting for them. And, and then he looks to a woman and he says, give me a drink. This request is a bit more scandalous than when I asked my sweet wife for a drink of her water from one of the eight water bottles she carries around all the time. Even though the level of shock may be the same because she's always frustrated with me that I never have my own water bottle even though she gets me two to three a year. I think she just takes them back, honestly. But um, nonetheless, this, this request from Jesus violated a variety of social unspoken laws of their time. We discussed already the zero-tolerance policy that Jews and Samaritans had for one another, but now you have a man talking to a woman. How preposterous, right? I'm kidding, but ancient Samaria was, was not as progressive as you and I. I mean, this was not the culture. Men did not speak to women, especially not Jewish rabbis speaking to a woman like this, a woman who we're going to find out from her peers was considered rather an outcast and living an immoral lifestyle. 
And Jesus honestly probably had every reason to just wait and not engage with this woman to say, you know what, I'll, I'm going I'm to miss this one. I'll come back tomorrow, see if she's here. I mean, he's just gone on a long journey. He's, he's tired. Peter probably talked his head off the whole time, and he's just sick of hearing voices. But instead, Jesus ministers to this woman amid his own weariness. I think that's why John tells us this detail to show us that Jesus was tired. He had every reason not to engage, but he persevered through his own weariness to engage with someone who did not know Jesus. And friends, I think some of us, some of you, God is calling you to do the very same thing. He's calling you to not give up ministering to that one person. He knows that you're weary. He knows that it's exhausting to keep showing up for that one person, to keep answering the phone when they call or responding to the text when they send it to you. He knows the holidays were supposed to bring you a lot of joy, but maybe this year they just kind of didn't and you're riding a wave of sadness. He knows you can't take any more sleepless nights because your spouse is in another year of that terrible residency program where your kids just won't sleep. That's where I'm at right now. I don't know what's going on with them, but they're not sleeping. But friend, I think Jesus, is, he's calling you to, to persevere. He's calling you not to give up. And what he's going to show you in this story is that he wants to give you life. He wants to give you an eternal spring of water, living water that you can take from continually to keep persevering in the work that he's called you to do. Second Peter reminds us of this beautiful reality. Peter wrote, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. One of the most beautiful realities about this verse, what it tells you is that each and every day when you wake up to do the work God's called you to do, you're not working at a deficit. Jesus really has given you and will give you everything you need that day to be obedient to the things he's called you to do. And the power to keep going, it comes from him. It doesn't necessarily come from a good night's sleep, although I really believe at this point that would go a long way for me. It doesn't come from the green juice. It comes from intimacy with Jesus. It comes from intercessory prayer to your king saying, God, I need you today. I need you to talk to that person. As easy as that might seem to everyone around me, I don't think I have it in me today to just talk, but I think you're calling me to. And in these next few verses, Jesus is going to do something really special something he's really good at. One of Jesus' many talents was, was taking something so ordinary to the human experience, something that you would just do or engage with in your culture every day, and he would take it and he would use it to show you a bigger and greater need in your life. It's similar to how we use the term gospel fluency around here, where we, we try really hard as a, as a church and as a body to be able to know that the gospel is what we need and, and apply it to everyday situations. Apply it to the hard job or the hard relationship. And I, honestly, it's a skill I'm still developing. If you've ever tried to do that, it can be difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to, to take my daughter's incessant need for a pouch and show her her truer and greater need for Jesus, the, the true and better applesauce, which is Jesus. But Parents, if you figure it out how to help me bridge the gap, let me know. I'm still trying. I get many opportunities a day. It feels like 25 to 30. So. But because Jesus has already violated the normal rules of engagement for his time, this woman is so fascinated that he would even speak to her. I mean, I don't, she probably didn't hear the question about the water. Like, how are you talking to me? People don't, like, dude, do you know that people don't talk to me? 
People keep me at an arm's length. They, they get water on the other side of the well so they don't have to talk to me. Why are you, a, a Jewish rabbi, speaking to me? She says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? <laughs> and in true Jesus fashion, he responds with a little swagger, a little odd, perplexing understanding. He looks at her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's probably like, you asked me a question and now you're upset because I didn't ask you a question about a question. I don't, who's asking questions? I don't. But even amidst this, she still doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He, he talks to her about, hey, you should ask me for living water. And she's like, all right, maybe, but, but cool. But like, where's the bucket? You ain't got no tools. Like, how are you going to get the water out? The living water you're talking about. You don't seem prepared to give me the thing that you just said you want to give me. Where are your tools? She says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is very deep. Where do you get this living water? And what Jesus goes on to do is then tell her that the water that she continues to drink, the water from the well that she keeps coming back to is never truly going to satisfy her. And not only does Jesus use this water to show, use this water to show her need for Jesus, he also uses this metaphor to show her that the pattern of her current life will never produce in her what she hopes that it will. We're going to see in a little bit, verses 16 to 18, that this woman has been married five times. We don't know what has happened in the five marriages, but we know that she's been married five times, it hasn't worked out, and now she's in the sin of adultery with a man that's not her husband. I think with this reality in mind, we, we could reasonably assume that this woman is trying to fill a void in her soul. I mean, she's, she's looking for probably purpose and identity, security in her culture, being married to a man, but it's, it's not working and it keeps failing. Anyone ever been in this position before? There's, there's a thing out there that you really believe will change your life, a person. I can think of a vivid moment of this in my life. I want you to just transport back to me. It's 2005. It's a good year, I think. I don't remember a lot about 2005, but it feels like a good year. It was a bit of a year of wonder for me as each and every day I would leave my house and I would, I would look around at my peers and, and each one of them, it seemed, was, was riding around on an, an engineering masterpiece called Heelys. Have you heard of these? If you don't know what Heelys are, I mean, fascinating piece of equipment, shoe, take the heel out put a skateboarding wheel in there, and, and suddenly life is different. I mean, effortless, the things you thought once took a lot of time. And I, I remember when I didn't have them, I'd walk through the store, and, and I was just so slow. I mean, I, I couldn't get the things I needed, and, and people were zipping around. I was like, man, I was so convinced that if I had a pair of these shoes that any minor task in my life that required movement would suddenly be so much more efficient. And to my surprise, I was given a pair of these shoes on Christmas Day. My parents had convincingly told me I would never receive such a dangerous pair of equipment. They probably knew I was a rather unstable person in 2005, physically, not emotionally. But, but they gave them to me, and I was so excited. And as I laced up my shoes for the first time, I, I was met with immense pain as I immediately fell, hurt my back, cut my hand, lost my dignity in aisle one of Walmart. <laughs> The shoes, in fact, did not make me more efficient. They didn't fix my problems, and they 100% did not give me a better social experience, as I hoped they would. 
And I know that Healy's is a, a bit of an absurd example, but, but this, this type of reality, this type of pattern grew in my own life. A pattern of being so utterly convinced that the next thing, whether it was a job, whether it was a school, a degree, a wife, a friend, would, would give me what I felt was lacking. It would give me, I'm not even say, I mean, I didn't think the heels were going to give me total satisfaction. I just look a little happier though, something to make me feel better. But I think what most of these things ended up doing was breaking, breaking my soul, <laughs> going out of style, and, and it would leave me still with senses of emptiness, like I, I'm always in this cycle of trying to attain, attain, attain to feel better. And I have to believe that maybe some of you are, are in the same place, maybe whether you want to admit it or not. If we, if we took a zoom-out view of your entire life, I mean, most everything you do is, is centered around one thing you really want, whether that's a job or financial stability, financial excess, just trying to be a good mom. Everything I do is trying to do that. And can I be honest with you? I think some of those are beautiful and worthy things, and, and God calls us to do these things with diligence, but I, I, I promise I don't think it will produce in you what maybe you think it will. A feeling of uh, success, a feeling of satisfaction, a feeling of I finally did the thing I'm supposed to do, and, and now it's all good. And I think the reason we often find ourselves settling for lesser gods or uh, just all these lesser things is because spiritually sometimes we just run out of steam. The Christian life is hard and we're like, what are we, what's good about this sometimes? And we find it easier in the course of our life to settle with what most everyone else around us is settling with. I mean, just objectively, it's easier to go with the grain of things than to push against the grain. But I think what Jesus is calling to us in this verse is to, to keep pushing against the grain, to, to keep enduring, showing us that the, the Christian life is a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard ministry, but it is deeply rewarding. Jesus' life is evidence of this. I mean, he, he worked so hard. He ministered hard. He went through hard things. He had hard conversations, so much so that he died on a cross so that you and I might reap the reward that he reaped. And so Jesus calls us to walk with endurance together because we know that our reward is great. Secondly, I think this story shows us that we should walk in repentance. This dynamic I just talked about, I think the woman of the well was, was likely wrestling with the same thing. The first marriage maybe was everything she hoped and dreamed it would be. He was cute. It was good. But as time went on, it, things began to fade, and it wasn't what they thought it was. And so it ended, and then she went to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So much so that now she's just caught in the sin of adultery. And I think Jesus is looking at her in this moment saying, this is not working. It's never going to work. The disappointment you feel, the well that you keep coming back to week after week is not going to give you what you hope it will. And not only is this pattern leaving you with a lack of satisfaction, it's, it's a sinful pattern, which is both displeasing to you and to the Lord. I think sometimes as we read this story, it, it, it could be easy for us to imagine that the heart of this woman was pure. It was good. She was just looking for love in all the wrong places. But the reality is that she was caught in a pattern of sin. She was caught in a pattern of, of almost idol worship, seeking and, and, and going after something continually more than she was to God. 
And in verse 15, after, after Jesus brings this dynamic to her, she goes, she asks for the living water, which he's offering. And that's a beautiful moment for someone to hear the words of Jesus, to hear the invitation that Jesus is giving and say, I want that. I want the thing you're talking about. It sounds so good. But what we see is that Jesus first needed to show her that repentance was necessary in her own life. This is why in 16 through 18, he asked her to go get her husband. Jesus is doing a couple things here when he, you know, she's like, give me living water. And he's like, hope, go get your husband. He's one, he's recognizing just a cultural norm that a, that a husband would be present in a moment like this where there's a, a big spiritual decision about to happen. The husband would be present to help make this happen. But I think more than recognizing a cultural system, Jesus is trying to show the woman the sin that was ruling her life. And as Jesus gives her this command to get her husband, her response to Jesus was marked by some deception and some shame. When he asks her to get her husband, she responds uh, that she doesn't have a husband. And Jesus responds by saying, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I think it's in this woman that the woman really begins to understand just who this man is that she's speaking to. Later in chapter 4, Jesus actually asked the woman, you know, what do you, basically, what do you believe about the Messiah? Do you believe the Messiah is coming? And she says, yes, the, the Messiah will come and the Messiah is going to tell us all things. I have to imagine as she said that, she was like, whoa, you're telling me all things about my life and you've never met me a day in your life. But as Jesus brings this up and I think calls her to repentance, what I, what I want you and I to see, friends, is that following Jesus on day one and on day 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 requires repentance from sin. You cannot allow Jesus to be Lord of your life. You can't constantly surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus while constantly surrendering and giving in to sin. John himself, in another book of the Bible that he wrote, 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think what John is doing here is in this story, he's showing us, and in 1 John, he's just telling us, you can't have both. You can't engage wholeheartedly with the desires and the grain of the world and also do the same with Jesus. There's one seat in your heart for a Lord, and it should belong to Jesus. It, it can't be both. And to this Samaritan woman and to you and I, Jesus is saying, through repentance and trust in me, I want to offer you something so much better than you think you have right now. I want to offer you a new name, a new identity, a new relationship that will never leave you wanting. And the moments which follow this invitation and challenge from Jesus, I think, is, is one of the more beautiful parts of the story. We see that as the woman and as we walk in repentance, this leads us to our third point, which is to walk in hope. And the hope that we walk with, Christian, is, is just this, and it's that Jesus has the power to change your life, and, and not only your life, but the lives of people around you. Once this woman understands who Jesus is and the power and forgiveness that's being offered to her and is now available to her, it changes everything about her. It changes the way she moves. She, she literally, metaphorically, quite literally leaves the well that she's at and runs back into the city to tell people about this man that she's just met. 
The text says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. One of the coolest things about this is that later in John, in the same chapter, we find out that, that many Samaritans in that town came to believe and know Jesus because of this woman's testimony, because of this woman's story, because of her action in going to tell everyone she could probably get to talk to her about what Jesus had done. Scholars, and, and as you read, actually call this outcast woman redeemed by grace the first New Testament evangelist that we ever see. She is the first person in Scripture that hears and talks to Jesus, believes in Jesus, and is recorded to go out and tell everybody she knows about what happened. What an incredible change in identity for this woman. Going down in history, not as the woman who just couldn't get it together, couldn't keep a marriage going, couldn't figure it all out, but going down in the Bible as the first great evangelist for King Jesus. And as we close, I, I want to give you a few points of application from our three main points. Our first point shows us that, that Jesus empowers us to walk in endurance and because of that, you and I can persevere with one another. As Christians, right, our, our collective hope and goal on this side of eternity, the mission that God has given each of us is to infuse the gospel into every part of our life. In the workplace we find ourselves in, the relationships we find ourselves in, being intentional about how can I model, share, and display the gospel to those around me that do not know it. And we want to see so many people believe in Jesus and find new hope in him. But this type of life-changing commitment and reality, it, it, it doesn't just happen by chance. If that was the case, we would never need to do anything. It happens through the church being intentional about how we spend our time and how we use our lives. And one of the greatest ways, sadly, that Satan has and will keep trying to slow down this type of ministry and mission is by getting all of us to turn on one another. By convincing the family of God, that's you and me, that we are not on the same team. And most of the time, this, this type of deceit, this type of tension, it doesn't come through a giant fight at your small group. I hope that hasn't happened to you. Please tell us about that if that's happened to you. But, but rather, what it comes through is smaller moments of tension, of frustration, of a wrong sentence or a wrong reaction that someone you've engaged with in the church has. And, and this happens over time with no reconciliation to the point where a disposition grows in your heart that I'm here, but I'm not with that person. We're both at this church, but we're not really on the same team. I just tolerate this person. And this type of feeling, you 100% have felt it. I have felt it. And I have to imagine that Jesus dealt with it a little bit mainly in his relationship with his disciples. And these guys were a, a motley crew. Like, they missed the mark a lot. Even in this story, we see that when they get back from getting food, they see Jesus talking. They don't come in and be like, hey, how can, I, how can I minister to this woman too? They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you talking to this woman? It had been so easy for Jesus to get frustrated, like, what are these guys doing? Like, 
they just don't get it. They never, they always miss the mark. They're always so concerned about something that's, that's not a big deal. I mean, I should just fire them and start fresh. Matter of fact, woman at the well, you can be the first one in. I'm getting a new bunch together. But friends, don't, don't let Satan convince you that, that everyone else is the problem. Don't let him convince you that, that your frustrations and your everyday battles are, are with people. You and I know from Scripture that the battles that we fight, the frustrations and the disunity that sometimes creeps into the church, it's, it's not because people just aren't great. It's because Paul tells us that actually what we're fighting against is the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan loves nothing more than to disrupt the unity which is meant to display the unity and the beauty of God. And it's with this, I just want to encourage us together. Let's, let's persevere with one another. Let's show up when it's hard. Let's show up when we're exhausted. Let's answer the phone for that person that calls you on Saturday night at 10 p.m. and you wish they wouldn't. And more than that, it's more than just doing it. It's asking the person to help you that really actually can help you. I promise you don't have enough self-will, bear down and grit to, to do all this kind of stuff. You need spiritual, I need spiritual power that is so outside of myself. I quite literally need Jesus to help give me the perspective, the energy, and the spirit to pick up my head and keep doing the things he's called me to do. And as we walk with endurance, we persevere with another. Secondly, as we walk and persevere, in order to do this well, I think we have to be quick to apologize and quick to forgive. This application goes hand in hand with our first one. If we're going to persevere with one another for the glory of God, then we've got to be a people that are quick to apologize and quick to forgive. In this story, Jesus calls the woman at the well to repentance. He calls her to recognize her sin and, and to lead her to repent of it to new life in Jesus. But her reaction to Jesus doing this is one that I think many of us uh, are, are pretty familiar with. She doesn't respond with humility and admission that she's been living in sin and doing something wrong, but rather she responds with avoidance and what appears to be some deceit and maybe a sense of shame. But what we see is that Jesus is not bringing up her sin. He's not bringing her sin to light so that he might manipulate her and control her with guilt and shame. Rather, Jesus wants to see her, help, help her see the folly of her sin and the new life and forgiveness which is now available to her. And church, this, this type of interaction is, is what we want to model with one another. We want to model it to each other and the, the world that's watching around us. God, in his grace, constantly forgiving you, forgiving me, showering us with undeserved grace, withholding from us that punishment and separation which we deserved. I mean, this is, this is an every hour occurrence for me. <laughs> Jesus covering my sin with the grace he's given me in Christ. And if this is true about our relationship with Jesus, then, then how can you and I not do the same with one another? If you and I were not too far gone from the grace and forgiveness given to us in Christ, then I promise you, no one in your life is too far away from the forgiveness that you can give them. 
And this brings us to our last application, and, and that's that Jesus and the woman at the well, they, they show us to walk in hope, to walk in repentance. And, and because they show us to walk in hope, I think one of the things it causes for you and I is it, it shows us that we, we can and we should expect great things from God. This story's been chock full of some cool stuff. I mentioned earlier that this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It always has been. I, I love it because, because of just how Jesus is. I love the story of redemption. I also love that um, one of the cool things is this is, I don't know, this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with any person in the entire Bible. It's almost as if John is writing this to say, this is a big moment. Jesus shared a lot of words with this individual. And I think John is begging us to, to slow down, to see the beauty of what's happening here, and calling us to model it in the same way. In this story, Jesus, one of the, reasons, the many reasons I love it is that, that Jesus leaves a good thing for a needy person. He leaves a place where it would have made sense for him to stay and keep doing his thing, but he says, no, I've, I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to engage with other people that need me. He, he breaks social norms. I just love when Jesus does that. <laughs> he gives grace to someone who was, wasn't necessarily looking for it. And he transforms a woman stuck in sexual sin into a sprinting evangelist that leads so many people to Jesus. And I think what I... What I love most is, is how Jesus did it, the method through which he did it. And it wasn't anything super special. He just talked to her. He engaged with her. He stopped keeping her at arm's length like the rest of her community was probably doing. He took something normal to her life and showed her the grace that she needed. Friends, God loves to use the ordinary conversations that you have with people in the church, outside of the church, and turn them into extraordinary stories of his grace and sanctification. I mean, look at the beauty of what happened in this story and, and remember the grace given to you in Christ when, when you were in the same state as the woman and maybe sometimes still find yourself in the state of the woman. It's easy to read this story and and see how cool Jesus was. And, and trust me, the story is all about Jesus' grace. But a lot of the times, I, I think we want to identify more with Jesus. And I'm even encouraging you to do some of that, to be like him in your engagement and your mission. But friends, the reality is we are so much more like the woman at the well than we are like Jesus. Even as we follow Jesus for the first time and we keep following Jesus, we find ourselves in similar patterns of, of going back to wells going back to things which are not meant to satisfy us, ignoring the unending well of God's spirit that's been given to us, that's meant to satisfy us and sustain us, but rather we turn away to other things. And it's through remembering stories like this, it's through remembering the sacrifice of Jesus that spur us on in obedience. And as we read this story, I, I often ask myself, like, am I acting the same way that she did? Am I finding opportunities to run and tell of all that Jesus has done in my life? I'd encourage you to think the same way. I mean, when was the last time your, our actions matched the actions of this woman? And chances are, uh, if they haven't, it may be that, that you've forgotten the grace, the immense grace that's been shown to you in Christ. 
And church, I just want to encourage you that that Jesus is not done doing this kind of life-changing work. He's not done writing incredible stories of conversion and grace like this one. This is what God is all about. That person you've been sharing the gospel with for five years and nothing's happening, you just think they're more annoyed with you than they were the first time? Keep persevering because Jesus sees and he is working. The person in your life that you can't seem to forgive, forgive them. Your humility in granting forgiveness or giving forgiveness may be the very thing that God uses to show someone the type of radical, unprecedented forgiveness that's available to them in Christ. And church, as as we walk together, as we raise up missionaries, as we send out church planning teams and invite more people into the fold of God, let's never stop expecting that the same God, the same Jesus that changed this woman's life in John chapter 4, is able and ready to do the same thing for the lives of people in your family, in your workplace, in our city, and all around the world. Would you pray with me? God, thanks so much for your beauty. Thank you for texts of scripture like this, God, where we, we get a glimpse into the compassionate, powerful hands of Jesus. God, as we walk away, we, we, we plead and we pray that we, we want to be more like you. We want to be the type of people that, that are unified, that persevere, that forgive one another, that are intentional about how we use our time and our lives, God, that we might model you here, engaging with the lost and dying world around us. But God, in order to do something like that, God, we need so much of you. We need so much of your help. We need so much of your guidance. We need so much of your grace when we, when we try and we mess up. So much of your grace when we go to, to other sources of life and satisfaction as opposed to going to Jesus. And so, God, would you, would you help us to walk away changed from this text? God, would you help us to be inspired to be more like Jesus? And God, would you help us leave more grateful for the grace of God than we were when we got here today? God, you are so good to us. You're so merciful to us. We celebrate you. We praise you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.